0: Scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, it's good to be with you and worshiping with you this morning. We've been um, studying a series on relationships a lot of things that get into in the way of our relationships when we're in community together doing life together and uh, one of the things we're doing this we started uh, this year to do is follow along the passages that we're learning on sunday with with the home meetings that meet throughout the week if you're new to liberty fairmount one of the uh, significant ways that you're known and cared for here is to be a part of a home meeting and live life together with others here in the city and also um talk about the truths together. It's a place where we can work some of these truths that we're grappling with and wrestling with into our lives. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been tracking along uh, throughout the week with what we do on Sunday. Today, I'd like to talk about conflict. Sometimes something breaks into the order of our world, the way that we order things, and the way that we sort of organize things, and the way that we make things sort of tight and neat. Right? sometimes things break into that and shakes us up enough to change us, not leaving us where we are, not leaving us where we are, but making us either far better off or far worse than we were. The greatest of journeys are always like this. And when it comes to forgiveness, we're on a journey. And our journey with the forgiveness that Jesus takes us on shows us here in this passage that we'll either be far better off or far worse off than we were before but when you hear what he has to say to you it's not going to leave you the same it's not going to leave you the same regarding forgiveness because what he says is unimaginably big I know there's much more here than we can cover today but I'm going to, try to, I'm going to try to highlight some of the important things that he brings out to us are you ready to have Jesus break into your world are you ready to be shaken up Are you ready for what he shows you in this passage? Let's look at it together. Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge our need for you. Uh, We depend on you. And we want to meet you in this text. We want to meet you here through your Holy Spirit, through your grace and your peace and your power. Transform us, Lord, as we hear your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to talk about forgiveness. Forgiving from the heart with the emotional humility and wealth that Jesus gave to us in the gospel. Forgiving from the heart with the emotional humility and wealth, those things coupled together, that Jesus gave to us in the gospel. So we're going to look at just a couple of things. We're going to look at the counterfeit of true forgiveness, and we're going to look at the nature and source of true forgiveness. First, the counterfeit. You and I have the natural tendency to counterfeit true forgiveness. They have a natural tendency to counterfeit true forgiveness. We see that here in Peter's language because what, what we do is we try to be balanced and we try to be reasonable in our forgiveness. Look at the words that Peter uses. Lord, how often? As many times as this? So he's trying to, he's trying to come at Jesus. And he's trying to be balanced. He's trying to understand what being reasonable about forgiveness would look like. And one of the things that we struggle with is that we think that we're we're open. We think that we're open to being taught about forgiveness. That's what Peter is. He's saying, Lord, teach me. Teach me about this, right? Is it this? Is it this sort of reasonable approach? Is it this balanced approach? But Peter brought his own way of understanding forgiveness when he asked for instruction. And God often challenges us there. When we have our own presuppositions, when we have our own way of looking at things, when we haven't let those go and we approach God and we expect him to operate and be ordered by the things that we expect, our own expectations, the way that we view the world, he will often challenge us right there. And he does so here. Uh, We'll see that in a moment. We want to frame forgiveness in a balanced way. Peter, like we do, thought that Jesus would ask him to forgive someone who had cost him something when he sinned against him. So he frames it in that context. Okay, somebody's hurt me, somebody's hurt me, and we're in community together. How often should I forgive him? What's the balanced approach? What's the reasonable approach, right? How much, how much should I invest? How much should I absorb the cost here? But in the way we frame it, there's a point at which we're willing to extract the cost from others for the way they hurt us, from what they've taken from us. And we see that in the way that Peter frames the question. How often? There's a limit to it. When do I get to spell out over and retaliate? When do I get to uh, fight for my rights? When do I get to do that, Lord? What is the balanced approach? What's reasonable? How long should I hold my ground? How long should I continue to forgive and show patience? When somebody seriously wrongs you, there's an absolutely unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you. It's an unavoidable sense, and we all experienced. When somebody hurts you, there's an unavoidable sense that they owe you. The wrong has incurred an obligation, a liability, a debt. When you've been wronged, you feel a compulsion to make the other person pay down that debt. Now, I want to take some, a moment and just think practically about what it looks like when we do this. What does it look like when we when we try to make others pay down the debt? When we spill out over that line and we're requiring payment from others, right? What does it look like practically? Well, one of the ways we do it is by hurting the person who hurts us. Okay? So and you might have experienced this, you might have done it yourself. But one of the ways that we help make others pay down the debt that we're unwilling to absorb the cost of ourselves is to hurt the person who hurt us. We make cutting remarks. And we drag out the past over and over. Or uh, how about this? We're far more demanding and controlling with that person than we are with anyone else. We can tend to do that. Because we feel deep down that they still owe us. Or how about this? We punish them with self-righteous mercy that is really a way to make them feel small. And to justify ourselves. Yeah, I'll show you mercy. But it's because... I'm here and you're there, right? So that's another way to make people pay. And another way that we do it, another way we intentionally hurt people is we avoid them and we're cold to them in more overt and more subtle ways. We've cooled in our relationship. We're unwilling to engage. We're extracting payment from somebody else. We've crossed that line. As Peter said, there's was viewing it, his worldview, as he looked at forgiveness, there was a line. And there's a point at which he would cross it, and he would make them pay. And we do the same thing. Also, we do it by innuendo or spin. We don't just do it through hurting other people. We do it through innuendo or spin or hint or gossip or direct slander to do what? To diminish him or her in the eyes of the other people around us, to diminish them to bring them a little bit lower. So we might run them down to others under the guise of warning people about them. Right? We might run them down to others under the guise of seeking sympathy and support and sharing our hurt. So we do it by hurting others. We do it by innuendo or spin or hint or gossip, directly slandering to diminish. We also do it by uh, harboring ill will in our hearts. We nurture this inside of us, so it's not so much what's happening outside in our relationships, it's not so much what we're doing there, but it's the way that we harbor it in our hearts. We continually replay the videos of the wrong in our imagination in order to keep the sense of loss and hurt fresh and real to us so that we can stay actively hostile to the person and feel virtuous ourselves. That's one way that we do it. What's another? Well, we often vilify or demonize the offender in our imagination. Again, it might not be to one another, but it might be inside. What's going on inside? That's important too. We indulge in rooting for them to fail and hope for their pain. Now, these are practical ways that we try to extract costs, that we try to spill out and extract costs. In all of this, something that we do is that we assume an authority that is not our own. We assume an authority that is not our own. It's as though we have the authority to extract the cost by force, when in fact we have the same level of authority. What does he call us? In the parable, he calls us fellow servants. We have no more authority over one another because we are... We're both servants. Verse 28, verse 29, verse 31, verse 33. His fellow servant is the theme. You see that? It's brought out very strongly. There is no higher ground, lower ground. You are equal in that you serve the same king. And verse 29 even when somebody just like him pleaded with him, pleaded with a man the same way that he pleaded with a king, he did not have pity on him. So, what are the signs that we're assuming authority, not ours to assume? One thing, the worst, one of the worst ways that can happen is verse 28, where it spills out into violence, right? There's hostility. He seized the guy, and he choked him. How many times have you entered into a conflict where you've gotten your back up, and you were ready to come to this? It's there underneath, and it's there underneath because of verse 30, refusal. He refused to show patience. From verse 29, that was shown to him. He refused to show pity, from verse 27, that was shown to him. Or he refused to show mercy, verse 33. Why? Because he didn't understand forgiveness at all. He didn't understand forgiveness at all. So, what's going on here? Verse 26, you see what he says? I'm going to try to bring out the ridiculousness of this statement, but we get there all the time inside, so I want to warn you about it and talk plainly about it. This is a ridiculous thing that he says. He says, verse 26, I will pay you everything. I will pay you everything. I will do it. The first servant in the story didn't like being held accountable for what he owed, and he wouldn't be found in that position again. I'll do it. I don't want to be accountable to you for owing this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of it. Through my effort, I'm going to provide you everything you need. I'm going to provide everything that I owe you. Through my effort, I'll do it. I promise you. But then he found someone who owed him and showed no pity to try to get what he believed was his when it was actually the king's. He showed no understanding for forgiveness. Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their sin, your heavenly father will not forgive your sins. He says that in Matthew 6. And we see judgment in this passage as a result of a lack of forgiveness. This doesn't mean that we can can somehow earn God's forgiveness through our own forgiving, but it does mean that we can disqualify ourselves from God's forgiveness. No heart that is truly repenting towards God could be unforgiving towards others. I want you to hear that. No heart that is truly repentant towards God can be unforgiving towards others. A lack of forgiveness towards others is a direct result of a lack of repentance towards God. And as we know, you must repent in order to be saved. We find that in Acts 2, verse 38. So we counterfeit forgiveness, and we spill out, and we do the opposite of it. We spill out over the line of forgiveness into hostility to one another in various ways. But I also want to take some time and just look at the nature and source of true forgiveness. You and I absorbing the cost when it's beyond the other's ability to do so. Why? Because Jesus absorbed the cost of our debt himself. And so as his followers, as ones who have been saved, as ones who have been forgiven so much, we get to do the same with one another. let's look at beyond the, other the, the other's ability to do so. In verse 24 we find 10,000 talents and I want to read to you from a, a cultural commentary on the text that shows what's happening there, what's being gotten across, what's being communicated. 10,000 talents probably represented more than the entire annual income of the king and perhaps more than all of the actual coinage in circulation in Egypt at the time. In one period, the silver talent represented 6,000 drachmas, or 6,000 days' wages for an average Palestinian worker. 10,000 talents would thus be roughly 60 million days' wages. In another period, 100 million. Although taxes were exorbitant in those days, especially for rural peasants, Josephus reports that annual tribute from Galilee to Perea under wealthy Herod to only be 200 talents. It was thus inconceivable that one official would get so far into debt. This is unpayable debt. There's no way to reconcile it. So how do we absorb the cost? Well, the first thing that we need to do is reframe the issue the way that Jesus does. Jesus reframes our worldview about forgiveness. He reframes, re- reframes Peter's worldview about forgiveness here. Jesus responding to Peter's question, teach me, teach me about the reasonable balance of forgiveness. Jesus responds, I do not say to you seven. Seven. That's not what I would teach you. That's not what I would lay down for you. That's not how I would understand it. Let me instruct you. Let me clarify for you what I mean. Seventy times seven. Again, a commentary about the way that phrase would have been used at the time. Seventy times seven does not really mean exactly 490 here. It's a typical graphic Jewish way of saying never, never hold grudges. Never do it. It's beyond your imagination how far away from you I want you to be from that. Never do it. So Jesus' call to us in forgiveness here is no longer reasonable. His call to Peter is no longer balanced but extremely costly to ourselves. Forgiveness is always extremely costly. It's emotionally very expensive. It takes much blood, much sweat, much tears, much effort. So in forgiveness you pay the debt of the other person, yourself, at cost to yourself. You absorb the cost. Christians in community are to never give up on one another. Never give up on one another, on a relationship. Never write off another believer and have nothing to do with them. We must never tire forgiving and or repenting and seeking to repair our relationships You know, Matthew 5.23 and following tells us that we should go to someone if we know they have something against us. And Matthew 18.15 and following says that we should approach someone if we know that we have something against them. In short, if any relationship is cooled off or is weakened in any way, it is always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. God holds you always accountable and responsible to reach out and repair tattered relationships. He holds you responsible. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the distance or the alienation began. So, when do we do it? When do we absorb the cost ourselves? Well, one of the things that we see in this test is when the person is wrong. Wronged us, and he asks or pleads with us for forgiveness were to do that. So there's a possibility that somebody would come to their sense and say, wow, I, you know what? I was wrong in the way that I handled you in the way that I spilled out over that line for you. And so this is the way I think it was wrong. Help me to see other ways. There are probably others. Will you forgive me for that? And here's what I think I can do differently in the, in the future will you forgive me for that? So it's possible that somebody asks you for forgiveness. At which point it's your duty? To forgive them. What's the reasonable amount of time or the 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 amount that you would go about this? Remember Jesus' challenge. It's not reasonable. It's not balanced. It is overflowing. It is unimaginably big, the amount that you have to give and pay for others in forgiveness. But also, when we realize that we have an unreconciled relationship, uh, that's one where you see avoidance, or coldness, or irritability. And this is whether or not the person has asked for forgiveness. Remember Matthew 5 and 18. Whether somebody's asked for forgiveness or not, it's our duty to go. Whether it's your problem with them or their problem with you, it's our duty to go. And when the person who has wronged us asks and pleads with us forgiveness, and when, whether there's avoidance, coldness, or irritability, we've got to go. Now, some warning signs for unreconciled relationships. We talked about this already. In some ways, the actions performed by the person that you're unreconciled with, they don't disturb you. They don't disturb you with others as much as they do with this person. So you'll see others doing the same kind of thing. You're not as uptight about it. You're not as hot and bothered under the collar about it but if there's somebody you're unreconciled with, you're more hot and bothered with them. You're more uptight with them. Understand? So that's one warning sign. If you find yourself avoiding or being cold or being very irritated with the other person, or if you can tell the other person is cold or irritable or avoiding you, then you probably have an unreconciled relationship. And you need to engage in the Lord's love and grace and peace through forgiveness here. So how do we do it? How does, how does forget, what does forgiveness look like? Practically. First, by refusing to hurt the person directly. We refuse vengeance, payback, or the infliction of pain in order to relieve the sense of debt we feel. Instead, what do we do? We try to be as cordial as possible. Have you done that with an enemy? What does cordiality look like with someone who's really hurt you? We're also very cautious of subtle ways that we can try to exact payment in our relationship. We refuse to extract payment even in the smallest ways, externally or internally. We refuse to do it. But second, we refuse refuse to cut the person down to others. We refuse the innuendo or the spin or the hint or the gossip or direct slander to diminish them in the eyes of others. And we protect them in the way that we talk about them instead. Be prepared for when you're in a position to protect somebody, when somebody else is slandering them to you, doing the things you know you're not supposed to do, and in your heart, you're tempted to go towards that. Be ready to defend them. Be ready to defend your enemy. But third, we also, by refusing to indulge in our ill will in our hearts, we don't dwell on what the payment would look like inside of us. We don't replay those tapes. We don't replay those videos. And when that starts to happen, we stop. We push the pause button. We say, oh, Lord, help me here. I don't want to push that again. I'm not going to do that. Friends, we need emotional humility to do this. Do you realize that you can only stay bitter towards someone if you feel superior? You can only stay bitter towards someone if you feel superior. Here's a quote. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's love for him. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. That's Miroslav Volf in his book, Inclusion and Embrace. So we need emotional humility to do this, but we also need emotional wealth. We need a tremendous amount of emotional wealth to be able to pay this kind of cost, to absorb this kind of cost. You can't be gracious to someone if you're too needy and too insecure. If you know God's love and forgiveness, then there's a limit to how deeply another person can hurt you. Did you hear that? If you know God's love and forgiveness, then there's a limit to how deeply another person can hurt you. He or she can't touch your real identity, wealth, or significance. The more we rejoice in our own forgiveness, the quicker we'll be to forgive others. Here's a real-life illustration from the book that our home meeting leaders are reading as a resource as we study these texts together throughout the week. A Turkish officer raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter for himself. Sometime later, she escaped and trained a nurse. Trained as a nurse. As time passed, she found herself nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. One night, by the light of the lantern, she saw the face of this officer. And he was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. The days passed, and he recovered, and one day the doctor stood by the bed with her and said to him, but for her devotion to you, you would be dead. And he looked at her and said, we've met before, haven't we? And she said, yes, we've met before. And he knew exactly what was going on, and he asked her, why didn't you kill me? And her answer, I'm a follower of him. Who said, Love your enemies. You see, because of Jesus, we must completely surrender the right to pay back or get even, yet at the same time, we must never overlook unreconciled relationships. Both must be true of us in the way that we approach forgiveness. This is almost the very opposite of how we ordinarily operate. Ordinarily, we don't seek to reconcile relationships on the outside, we don't confront or call people to change, or make restoration. But meanwhile, we stay hateful and bitter on the inside. But Jesus here is calling us to do the exact opposite. We're, deeply, we're to deeply forgive on the inside, so as to have no desire for vengeance or extracting payment. But then we are to speak openly about what has happened with a desire to help the person see what was done wrong. One writer put it this way, By bearing the cost of the sin, you are walking in the path of your master. It is typical for non-Christians today to say that the cross makes no sense. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? But no one who has been deeply wrong just forgives. If someone wrongs you, there are only two options. You make them suffer, or you refuse revenge and forgive them, and then you suffer. And if we can't forgive without suffering, how much more must God suffer in order to forgive us? For if we sense the obligation and debt and injustice of sin unavoidably in our soul, how much more does God know it? And on the cross, we see God forgiving us. And that is only possible if God suffers. And on the cross, God's love satisfied his own justice by suffering, bearing the penalty for sin. There is never forgiveness Without suffering, nails, thorns, sweat, blood, never. You forgive others because in Jesus, you've been forgiven your debt. Verse 27 in Jesus' story, released, forgiven. Released, forgiven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. Our community with one another in Christ consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not a human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. So friends, what have we seen? First, we covered our tendency to counterfeit true forgiveness. And the key point is that we think of forgiveness as something with limits, something that we can keep balanced and reasonable. But Jesus frames it in an entirely different way than that. And second, we cover the nature and source of true forgiveness. The key point is that you and I, you and I are to absorb the cost when it's beyond the other abilities to do so. Because Jesus absorbed the cost of our debt when it was beyond our ability to do so. Forgive one another from the heart That's what Jesus commands us to do. So what do you do this week? Well, remember the paradigm in Ephesians 4 that Paul had given us that we said is a lens that we can look at change in all of these areas, all of these uh, roadblocks in the way of us relating as we're meant to in the gospel. So there's a put off, and there's a being made new in the attitude of your mind or the spirit of your mind, and there's putting on. So let's look briefly just at three of those, what you can do this week. Put off. You've got to stop wanting to call things your own to get God off your back. You remember? The servant felt like he could pay it all back. There's delusion in that, there's spiritual unreality in that. You've got to wake up. So help each other to do that by talking about it and praying that into our lives together. But also, you've got to be renewed. You've got to frame forgiveness in the way that Jesus does. He doesn't call us to reasonable balance forgiveness. It is unfathomable what he calls us to, and it takes an enormous amount of emotional humility and emotional wealth. And yet he provides that for us in the gospel, because he himself paid the price that we should have paid. He himself absorbed the cost in your place. Why? To empower you through his spirit to live in the same way towards others. To show other people the hope that you have. You notice that in this uh, parable, the servant who does all these things is not alone. The other servants who were along with him were aghast. They were aghast. And they had to appeal to the king. We need to be able to frame forgiveness in the way Jesus does. But we also need to put on, which means to pay the cost of the other person's wrong against us, do it from the heart. Look, if your identity is wrapped up in what you control, what you hold on to, the things that you think you've accredited for your reputation and who you are, then this kind of forgiveness is going to be impossible for you. But if your identity and who you are and your security and your significance and your confidence is resting on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's interceded on your behalf, and how he gave us everything so that you wouldn't be lost, and how he loves you through that, and how he practically steps in for you, you can do this for others from the heart because you recognize the enormity of what you've been given. Can you do that? Can you talk about that this week? Can you pray for that this week in your, our home meetings? Seek him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that uh, you do not hold our sin against us our sin of unbelief, our sin of recognition of the enormity of what you've done for us and how you've interceded for us. Jesus was our faithful representative and so we rest in his record and his record alone as we approach you now in freedom, with humility, because Jesus had to die for us, and with boldness, because he did. You love us that much. Lord, let us think rightly our remaining days going into the rest of this day, this work week, our home meetings together, our work environments, our learning environments, environments with our friends, environments with our enemies. Let let us frame through the power of your Holy Spirit forgiveness the way that you frame us, the way that you frame it, and empower us to live like like that. Empower us to do it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.